Thank you. That concludes general questions, and we move on to First Minister's questions. And at question number one, Douglas Ross. Thank you, Presiding Officer. First Minister, do you believe it's a hard-right policy to support Scotland's oil and gas industry? First Minister. I believe supporting a just transition away from fossil fuels to uh, renewable and low-carbon sources of energy is a policy all of us uh, should support. What is absolutely essential is that we support those who currently work in the oil and gas sector um, and that we don't substitute domestic production with imported production. But for the sake of our planet, for the sake of future generations, we must accelerate that transition. That is what this government is investing to do. And of course, the Finance Secretary will set out our investments, our next investments in the transition to net zero in the budget later this afternoon. That's what I am focused on. I've just come uh, this morning from witnessing uh, the demolition of the chimney at Longana. It's not very long ago that we would not have been able to contemplate keeping the lights on in Scotland without Longanet, uh, and certainly wouldn't have been able to contemplate uh, that coal-fired uh, power station closing without causing significant unemployment. So we can do just transition, and we owe it to the oil and gas sector to support it in that transition too. Douglas Ross. Last week, when we heard that oil and gas jobs in Scotland could be at risk, the First Minister's coalition partners celebrated. They celebrated. Patrick Harvey, one of our ministers, claimed that supporting Scotland's oil and gas industry was a policy of the hard right. Those statements are an insult to every single worker in the North Sea sector, and they should be condemned by the First Minister, but as we've just heard, they won't be. And it's because, as the Greens keep on boasting, they forced the SNP into, and I quote, a massive change in direction over oil and gas. So can I ask the First Minister, what matters more to her government, jobs for the Scottish Greens or jobs for North East workers? First Minister. Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's very clear that references to being right-wing are references that uh, Douglas Ross seems to take very personally. I'll leave people to... Uh, <laughs> judge why that might be the case. Uh, let me also say, just as an aside, uh, that what is putting potentially, potentially uh, North Sea uh, oil and gas uh, workers' jobs at risk uh, right now is the UK government's failure to invest as a priority in the Acorn Carbon Capture Project in the North East. So perhaps a bit less political rhetoric from Douglas Ross and uh, a bit more encouraging his colleagues uh, in uh, the UK government, if they can find the time from uh, their other uh, pursuits uh, at the moment, to prioritise uh, investments that Scotland badly needs. For my part, I'll continue to ensure that the Scottish Government is investing. We do not uh, do anybody in oil and gas any favours if we pretend that the just transition is not necessary, yeah. or if we pretend that it is not necessary for the sake of the future of the planet to accelerate that just transition. But what we must do is ensure no one is left behind in that transition, and we must make sure our energy needs are met uh, in a renewable and low-carbon way. That's what this government is focused on, and that will be reflected in the budget this afternoon. Uh, I am proud of the progress Scotland has made so far uh, in the journey to net zero, but we have much still to do. Uh, as we mark today the definitive end of coal power in Scotland, 
I think we should take great confidence in what can be done when we show the leadership, when we plan properly and when we make the investments. That's what this government is going to do and I'll leave the Conservatives uh, to worry about the many things they've got to worry about right now. Douglas Ross. Douglas Ross. I think it's disgusting that the First Minister joked and laughed about a comment from one of her ministers that has been so hurtful to people employed in the North Sea sector and is so harmful for such sorry, important colleagues, Mr. Ross, Mr. Ross, sorry, could you just give me a moment? There's quite a lot of noise in the chamber. I'd really like to make sure that we can all hear Mr. Ross's question. I'd be very grateful if you could begin again, Mr. Ross. Thank you. I will begin again, presiding officer, because if SNP and Green members don't like to hear this, I thought it was very distasteful for the First Minister to laugh and joke about a comment that has been so hurtful to people in the North Sea oil and gas sector. But now, for the first time, we have Scottish Government ministers who want fewer jobs and less investment in Scotland. They're against building any new roads. They want to stop people driving, even though these people can't get to work without cars. The Greens believe that economic growth is no longer possible. And they've also said that governments can't run out of money. So now that these extreme economic views are at the heart of her government, isn't it just a matter of time before the First Minister abandons more Scottish workers in the way she's abandoned the oil and gas industry? First Minister. Well, can I say, presiding officer, we have witnessed and are continuing to witness uh, right now uh, many disgusting things in yeah, politics, yeah, yeah. but yeah. none of them yeah. are on the part of this Scottish yeah. government. <laughs> and I, I almost feel a little bit of sympathy for Douglas Ross today because I know he must be deeply mortified uh, by the actions and behaviour of his colleagues in the UK government. But that is no excuse. That is no excuse, no excuse for throwing around unfounded accusations and trying to cause concern on the part of oil and gas workers right now. I, as First Minister, am committed to making sure that we have a just transition away from oil and gas in the same way that we have had that transition away from coal power because the future of our planet demands that. And we will make the investments to ensure that that is done justly and fairly. And if the UK government wanted to work with us around carbon capture, for example, then that transition would be easier. I am committed to ensuring that we don't leave people behind, that we don't have fewer jobs. Instead, we have clean, green jobs for the future. Uh, just as on Friday, I visited NIG uh, to mark a major investment there that will see uh, towers for offshore wind manufactured in the Highlands. These are the kind of investments that we are supporting, uh, and that is the work we will do to secure a just transition in Scotland for the sake of the future of the planet and generations to come. Douglas Ross. Of course, I'm sure the First Minister will welcome the UK government's investment in the NIG development as well. But the record is very clear. The video will show the First Minister laughing and joking. Sorry, Mr. Ross. Sorry, sorry, Mr. Ross. Um, I'm, yeah, I'm afraid there, there's quite a lot of noise in the chamber at the moment. Could I? 
can we possibly have the sound elevated? I think we're going to look into having your sound elevated, but in the meantime, colleagues, I'd be very grateful if we could hear Mr Ross speak. We don't need, we don't need any other voices while Mr Ross is speaking. So thank you. Mr Ross. Thank you, Presiding Officer. I'll repeat my comments again then. I hope the First Minister will also welcome the UK Government's investment in NIG, but I hope she will also reflect on her own actions, where the video will show she laughed and joked about Patrick Harvey's comments regarding the North East and the North Sea sector. But this afternoon, her Government will set out next year's budget. It should be a budget that uses the biggest ever block grant from the UK Government to invest in public services. It should be a budget that delivers record spending to restore Scotland's NHS after what will be one of the worst ever winters. It should be a budget that improves local roads and rebuilds communities by giving local government a fair share. It should be a budget that supports businesses to create Scottish jobs and provide more opportunities for the next generation. It should be a budget that puts the national interests first, not the narrow interests of this nationalist coalition. Today, there is a real chance to kickstart Scotland's economic recovery from COVID. Is the First Minister going to take that opportunity, or is she going to give in to the Greens again? First Minister. Well, let me say, first of all, when I had the privilege of being in NIG on Friday, I did welcome the investment of the UK Government alongside uh, considerable investment on the part of Highlands and Islands Enterprise. Uh, but I also lamented, as many people there did, as many people across the energy sector that I speak to right now do, the lack of investment and commitment of the UK Government to carbon capture in the ACORN project. And we cannot simply <laughs> pretend uh, that that is not a real issue. Uh, and on the budget, presiding officer, the finance secretary, of course, will set out the budget uh, to Parliament this afternoon, and it will do all of uh, the things that Douglas Ross uh, has just talked about there. Uh, but let me tell you one thing that the budget will do that I hope Douglas Ross will listen to very carefully, and I'm proud it's something that we are doing in partnership with the Scottish Greens. Uh, after seeing the disgusting, and I will use that word deliberately, uh, move of the UK Government to take £20 a week away from the poorest families across Scotland and indeed across the UK. The budget this afternoon will devote the resources to doubling the Scottish child payment. This Government will give £20 a week to the poorest families across Scotland. That is the difference between this Scottish Government and the UK Government, and I am proud of the budget the Finance Secretary will present to this Parliament later today. Question number two, Anna Sarwa. Presenting officer, Greater Glasgow and Clyde Health Board has been in level four special measures for over two years, since November 2019. An oversight board was set up by the Scottish Government. Can the First Minister tell us when the oversight board last met? First Minister. Uh, the assurance group uh, that flowed from uh, the Oversight Board, I think, is due to meet uh, on the 17th of November. I think it's a couple of months since that has uh, met, if uh, I'm correct about that. But of course, I think more than 80% of all of the recommendations of the Oversight Board have already been implemented, just as the recommendations coming from the independent review have also uh, been implemented. That is the action that has been taken to address concerns around the Queen Elizabeth Hospital, while, of course, we await the work of the independent public inquiry, something that Anna Sarwar, of course, previously called for. Anna Sarwar. So, the answer the First Minister was looking for is that the oversight board set up by the Scottish Government last met in March, nine months ago. 
and the review group she referred to has not met for over two months, and she says it's due to meet in November. Despite everything that's happened in the last month, no meeting of the Oversight Board for nine months, and no meeting of the review group for two months. And she wants families and staff to believe that this is a government that's got a grip of this crisis. Now, last week, the First Minister told us there had been two Hyatt red warnings and one amber in the past year. I learned yesterday from the Health Board that none of these were cases I have raised in the past month. Not Andrew Lawrence's death with Aspergillus, not the case of the child with stenotrophomonas in the past few months, and not the case I raised last week of a child who died with serratia. All high-risk bacteria linked to water and the hospital environment. None of them, none of them triggered a Hyatt red warning, despite everything that has happened and despite them all meeting the criteria. First Minister, if that is not the definition of cover-up and denial, what is? First Minister. Well, I, I'll, I'll come on to that point directly, because I think people who had listened to our exchange, I thought quite constructive exchange last week, would have heard me set out exactly uh, the trigger point for a, a notification to the Scottish Government. But on the issues of the oversight uh, group, it's not about meetings, it's about actions. And uh, to be precise, 88% of the oversight board's recommendations have already been completed. Actually, the remaining uh, actions that are outstanding don't relate uh, directly to patient safety. Uh, the assurance, advice, assurance and review group uh, will meet uh, next week on Friday the 17th of December. That will be chaired by the Interim Chief Nursing uh, Officer. So it is about making sure that recommendations that are made are implemented, and that is what has happened. Um, in terms of the notifications to government under the HIAT uh, procedure, as I set out at some length, uh, as the presiding officer will recall last week, uh, that happens when there are two or more linked cases of infection. Um, and I set out uh, the number uh, in the adult hospital that uh, had happened there. But let me also say this, that is about uh, triggering a notification to the Scottish Government. Uh, when that doesn't happen, that means, does not mean that no action is taken. Health boards will... Uh, have problem assessment groups or, or other actions uh, that address any issues relating to infections. It is simply not the case to say that uh, infections are not taken seriously. As I said last week and as Anna Sarwar conceded and agreed with, uh, despite the best efforts, it will never be possible in any hospital anywhere to eradicate and avoid all cases of infection. But all cases of infection are taken seriously at the Queen Elizabeth and at every other hospital, and that's what I would expect. Anna Sarwar. The First Minister was wrong last week on the criteria for Hyatt Red, and she's wrong this week. I have the criteria for Hyatt Red right in front of me. And frankly, as a former Health Secretary, I would expect her to know better. The criteria is very clear. Any of the major criteria mean it's a Hyatt Red. So any one of these, risk of transmission, requires a major clinical intervention, risk to life, rare infection, associate mortality or public interest. At least one, only one of them needs to be met. I think more than one of them has been met, if not all of them met in each of these three cases, yet none of them being a Hyatt Red warning. So perhaps the Health Secretary and the First Minister can review the Hyatt document and actually understand how the procedure works. So, Presiding Officer, given all of the revelations of the past month, given everything that has happened over the past two years, given the demands of families and staff for openness, and given the calls for the First Minister to get a grip of this crisis, the Oversight Board has not met for nine months, the Review Group hasn't met for over two months, and the Health Board is still not reporting deadly infections in the hospital. I met with the Chair and the Chief Executive for the Health Board yesterday. First Minister, how can you still have confidence in them? They're complacent 
and belligerent attitude demonstrates everything that is wrong with the culture at the top of this health board. Why, after everything that we have learnt, do you continue to take their word over the word of staff, families and patients who surely deserve better? First well, Minister, just a, an utter mischaracterisation uh, of my position. I know how the framework operates very well. What I have set out is the case. Uh, the Oversight Board, as I said a moment ago, 88% of its recommendations already implemented. Uh, a process of uh, scrutiny in the form of the independent public inquiry already underway. Um, we take seriously and have taken seriously any and all concerns that are raised about the Queen Elizabeth. But as I said last week, Anna Sarwar wants to suggest to people uh, that somehow the Queen Elizabeth is a, a hospital that is less safe than other hospitals. Uh, the evidence does not bear that out. Uh, and in individual cases, I am unable to comment on individual cases because of patient confidentiality, uh, but all concerns that are raised are taken extremely seriously, and I know that will have been discussed uh, with Anna Sarwar uh, yesterday. And I've made very clear, any member of staff uh, who has concerns and who feels that those concerns are not being taken seriously or that they are not being uh, somehow allowed to speak out should feel free to come to me or to the Health Secretary about that. We will continue to make sure that all actions are taken uh, to deliver high-quality patient care in the Queen Elizabeth, which clinicians do already. Um, and I think that is important. I think it is also important that Anna Sarwar or other members come to this chamber and raise concerns. But let us not undermine confidence in a hospital that is delivering high-quality care for patients every single day. Thank you. We will move on to supplementary questions, and I call Jim Fairley. Uh, thank you, President Officer. Uh, I'd like to ask the First Minister what impact she thinks that there may be on compliance with COVID rules following the party scandal unfolding at Westminster. First Minister. Well, I hope there is uh, no impact on compliance with the COVID protections because it is really important that all of us comply with these protections. And uh, people can be angry at politicians, uh, all politicians at times, uh, but it is important that people comply with these protections for their own safety, for the safety of loved ones and for the country as a whole. Uh, we face right now in the Omicron variant uh, a very serious challenge. I'll brief party leaders further um, on the, the nature and scale of that challenge uh, later this afternoon. It's rapidly spreading. It poses uh, a real difficulty for us. But one of the ways in which we can help slow transmission is to comply with all these protections, and I would appeal to people across the country to do so. Liam Kerr. Thank you, Presiding Officer. The upgrade to Aberdeen's Hodigan Roundabout, one of Europe's worst, has had its completion date postponed on five separate occasions already. In September, this government told me it would be completed by winter. Now, we're there, yet the disruption continues and there's no sign of the vital upgrade being completed. So can the First Minister confirm, will there be another delay to completion of this project and will there be a cost overrun? First Minister. Um, of course, we're at the start uh, of winter. I'll ask the Transport Minister to write directly to the member with a full update on both the timing and uh, the cost associated with the Hodigan roundabout, which I know uh, is incredibly important uh, to commuters in Aberdeen. Paul Sweeney. Thank you, Presiding Officer. I was contacted this week by Mr Ron Park, whose child was being cared for by his mother, when they received advice from NHS 24 mm -hmm. to go to Stobhill Hospital. Clinicians at NHS 24 thought Mr Park's son might have bacterial meningitis, a life-threatening condition. However, Stophill Hospital phoned minutes later saying that they wouldn't see this family and if they wanted medical attention, they should go to the Royal Alexandra Hospital in Paisley 
30 minutes away by car. Mr Park's former partner lives in the northeast of Glasgow and can't drive. I was deeply alarmed that the family of a child with a possible life-threatening meningitis condition would be treated in this manner. What does the First Minister have to say to them today? First Minister. I, I can absolutely understand the concern and the anxiety that would have been caused. I think anybody with a sick child uh, will, will feel that anxiety and doesn't want that compounded by uh, getting wrong advice or getting uh, advice that they believe to be wrong from the National Health Service. Uh, I'm reluctant and always reluctant to comment too much on individual cases. I don't question what I'm being told in the Chamber, but obviously want to understand the full details. If Paul Sweeney wants to write to me or to the Health Secretary, I will undertake that we will look into that, uh, come back to him so that he can update his constituents and ensure that uh, patients, particularly those uh, with sick children, are getting the right advice uh, and the advice they need at what I know are very stressful times for them. Liam MacArthur. Thank you. Road equivalent tariff was introduced on the West Coast ferry routes uh, almost 14 years ago. It was promised on Pentland Firth routes uh, four years ago, but there is still no sign. So, as we approach the end of another year, can the First Minister tell my Orkney constituents when the Government will finally deliver the cheaper ferry fares repeatedly promised year after year? First Minister. Uh, we have taken a range of actions, as Liam MacArthur I know, is aware of, to uh, ensure that ferry fares are more affordable uh, and ferry travel is more uh, accessible uh, and, and more convenient and easier for uh, his constituents. Uh, road equivalent tariff uh, is obviously something that uh, has been uh, debated and looked at uh, and considered. Uh, there are uh, complications, as he will be aware, in terms of some of the un unintended consequences of what road equivalent tariff uh, would deliver. But again, I will ask the Transport Minister to write to him with an update on the actions that we are taking to uh, address the affordability of uh, ferry travel uh, for his constituents. Alistair Allen. To ask the First Minister what engagement the Scottish Government has had uh, with the UK Government regarding the waiver uh, on COVID-19 vaccine property rights. First Minister. I have written to the Prime Minister uh, on this issue. I think I said in the Chamber on Tuesday that I uh, would do so, uh, and I make clear my support uh, for these calls. Uh, we are being reminded uh, very starkly right now uh, by the Omicron variant of the importance of getting vaccines, not just to everybody here in our own country, uh, but to everybody across the world as quickly as possible. So I think this is a really important call, and I uh, hope the Prime Minister uh, will treat the letter and the calls more widely that are being made seriously, and uh, the Scottish Government stands ready to work with the UK Government to do whatever we can uh, to make sure vaccines get to people across the world as quickly as possible. Jamie Green. Thank you, Presiding Officer. Uh, cervical cancer screening rates in NHS Greater Glasgow and Clyde are amongst the lowest in the country. I have been contacted by many women in my region who are very concerned that they are not able to get an appointment for up to six months at their local GP for this vital checkup. Given that it takes just one missed test to miss a diagnosis and potentially save someone's life, can I ask the First Minister how do we ensure uh, that in our earnest efforts to tackle this COVID virus, we are not inadvertently creating a legacy of people who will also die of undiagnosed cancers, knowing that for some it may already be too late. First Minister. Uh, I think that is uh, one of the most serious questions uh, being posed uh, to all of us right now. And uh, let me say it's something uh, that weighs very heavily on me, the, the implications of COVID, the unavoidable uh, and inescapable implications of dealing with COVID, uh, what they might mean for health and uh, indeed uh, the much wider impacts uh, across the population. So I, I want to assure the member and indeed assure the chamber that these considerations uh, are always uh, very high up in my mind and in the mind of the government. 
Uh, specifically around cervical screening, it is really important to uh, cancer screening generally. Uh, we had to pause the screening programmes for a period uh, during uh, the early part of the pandemic. Uh, they are now operational again. It's important uh, that people are able to get appointments for cervical and other uh, cancer screening, but it's also important that we encourage uptake uh, of screening programmes, and uh, that's particularly true uh, for women uh, around cervical screening and around uh, breast screening. So there's a, a great deal uh, that we need to do, uh, and I, I want to repeat that assurance that it is a, an issue of great priority for us. Mark Ruskell. Thank you. As the Longanet chimney was demolished this morning, I'm sure the First Minister felt it was a moment of history in our journey to net zero. But it was also a moment to reflect our gratitude to the workers who kept our lights on for so many decades. Are there lessons for our wider just transition that we can learn from the way that Longanet was shut back in 2016? First Minister. Yes, I, I do think there are lessons. Um, it, it was uh, very special to be there today uh, as the, the chimney came down. Uh, but it was very clear I spoke to people who had worked in Longanet themselves, uh, but also people who had worked there, whose parents, grandparents had worked there, you know, has been uh, until a few years ago generating power in Scotland for most of my lifetime, for uh, more than 50 years. So there was mixed emotions uh, there. Clearly a symbolic moment because it does mark the end of coal power, uh, but people, uh, I suppose, sad to see it go, not least because it has been uh, a feature of our landscape for these 50 years uh, as well. But there are lessons to learn. Uh, I talked about some of them earlier on. Not long ago, it would have been unthinkable uh, that we could have kept the lights on or found employment for people who worked there. Uh, that has been done. So it should inspire us to know that just transition it is possible, but what it says is we need to manage it, we need to plan for it, and we need to make the right investments. So, yes, I think there are, uh, amidst the mixed emotions, there are positive lessons there that we must now take the opportunity to learn. Rhoda Grant. The First Minister will be aware of the recent appointments to the board of David McBrain Group, which include a chairman famed for presiding over the ferry fiasco at Seamal and three non-executive directors none of whom have island links. Many islanders have seafaring experience, yet the Scottish Government seem to enable to find one to appoint to this board. Can the First Minister explain why islanders are being overlooked by her government? First Minister. Um, well, I, I can understand the concerns that are being expressed here. Um, I, I don't think that is the case. There are rigorous processes uh, that have to be gone through before appointments to uh, boards, and, and uh, we comply with those processes. Uh, I would encourage the members, I'm sure she will, because uh, I, know she will, I know she takes her duties extremely seriously, to meet with the new chair, the new board members, uh, and hopefully they will be able to allay her concerns in terms of uh, the attention they will pay to the needs of island communities as they go about uh, their jobs. And I'm sure the Transport Minister would be willing to have a conversation with her about this as well. Thank you. Before we go on to question three, um, just let members know that if we have any time remaining after question seven, I'll take more supplementary questions from those who have already pressed, and there's no need to press again. And at question number three, I call Rachel Hamilton. To ask the First Minister what action the Scottish Government is taking to treat people with heart valve disease. First Minister. Our heart disease action plan sets out the aim that everyone with suspected heart disease, including people with heart valve disease, should have timely and equitable access to diagnosis, treatment and care. An initial investment of £2.2 million has supported progress on the actions in the plan and we're work undertaking work to improve access to cardiac diagnostics and developing nationally agreed pathways of care for all cardiac conditions. We've committed more than £1.5 million over five years to support a change in access to and use of data to support improvements in diagnosis 
diagnosis, treatment and care uh, for people with all heart conditions in April 2021. We also commissioned Public Health Scotland to deliver the Scottish Cardiac Audit Programme. Significant clinical and patient engagement is currently underway to support its development. Rachel Hamilton. I thank the First Minister for that answer. Patients with serious heart defects in Scotland have been told hospital appointments cannot go ahead in 2022. Those at risk of heart failure are facing waits of up to seven months, according to an investigation by the charity Heart Valve Voice. Despite the challenges of the pandemic and staff working flat out, this is a treatable condition and can be fatal. We know that under this SNP government, a&E waiting times have fallen to their worst level since the SNP came into power. So can the First Minister commit further to looking at the accessibility, diagnosis, treatment and care of patients with serious heart defects before they end up waiting for hours in A&E? First Minister. Well, yes, we are doing all of that, and I, I covered some of that in my initial answer. Uh, we do know that the numbers of people waiting more than 12 weeks for cardiology outpatient appointments has increased throughout the pandemic. Uh, however, there is no current indication that parent, patients with heart valve disease have been told that they can't have appointments in 2022. And our recovery plan sets out uh, the key actions we will take to address the backlog in care and meet the ongoing healthcare needs for people across uh, Scotland. And in total, of course, that's backed by over a billion pounds of targeted investment. I want to take the opportunity to thank Heart Valve uh, Voice for their work uh, and the report they have produced. Uh, we will consider that fully and I'm sure uh, that will have an important contribution to make uh, to the ongoing work that I set out in my initial answer. Question number four, Stephanie Callaghan. Thank you, President Officer. To ask the First Minister about the Scottish Government's responses to the Citizens Advice Scotland poll, which found that one third of respondents could not afford their energy bills. First Minister. Well, I'm deeply concerned about the impact of recent energy price rises on households. Uh, of course, given powers related to the energy market are reserved, uh, I'm disappointed not to have seen action from the UK Government to support in particular low-income households. Uh, this Scottish Government has already taken a number of actions, though, building on the support we provided last winter. Our £10 million fuel insecurity fund will ensure direct financial support is available to those at risk of self-disconnecting or self-rationing. Um, and we have allocated over £1 billion since 2009 to tackling fuel poverty and improving energy efficiency. We also continue to fund Home Energy Scotland, who can provide advice on how to make homes warmer and cheaper to heat. Stephanie Callaghan. I thank the First Minister for her answer. With the UK Government's cruel and unnecessary £20 cut to universal credit, meaning that many more families are likely to struggle with rising energy bills, does the First Minister agree with me that families in this predicament should not suffer in silence? Instead, they should seek urgent expert counsel from organisations such as Citizens Advice Scotland and the WISE Group. First Minister. Uh, yes, I do uh, agree with that. The, the UK Government's decision to remove £20 a week from the poorest households, which I've referred already, uh, to already today, uh, was the biggest overnight cut to welfare in 70 years. It was a callous act at any time, but particularly at a time of rising prices and rising energy bills. And I think it's important that we 
don't quickly forget that, that we continue to remember uh, that needless, callous act uh, that has been carried out on the poorest in our society. But I would urge anyone who is concerned about their energy costs to seek support from advice services such as Citizens Advice Bureau. Uh, we've launched a marketing campaign also to raise awareness of services available to people uh, with financial worries and Home Energy Scotland can also refer families for benefit checks and also to support from the Fuel Insecurity Fund. Christine Graham. Uh, thank you very much, Presiding Officer. Uh, First Minister, rising energy costs particularly hit pensioners, many of whom are housebound. Yet at least 123,000 pensioners in Scotland, according to Age Scotland, have not claimed pension credit. Indeed, it's reckoned 40% UK-wide do not claim this benefit, which is a gateway to additional benefits. Does the First Minister agree with me that the UK Government should be ashamed and instead of removing the triple lock on pensions, fund a decent basic state pension in the first place? First Minister. Uh, yeah, the UK has one of uh, the lowest levels of state pension uh, anywhere in Europe, uh, I believe. Uh, and I think it is disgraceful and shameful that the triple lock uh, has been removed. But I think it's also important, Christine Graham makes uh, a very good point here, uh, that where benefits uh, are available, uh, there are awareness campaigns to encourage people to take up those benefits. That's a call that is rightly made on us in terms of devolved benefits. So we have made repeated calls in the UK Government to take a more strategic approach to promoting their uh, benefits, and, and we've done that recently in partnership with the Northern Ireland and Welsh Governments. Uh, but these issues would be less uh, severe and less acute if, as Christine Graham said, uh, the UK had a better state pension provision. I don't hold out much hope of that being delivered uh, by a UK Government in the near future, uh, but who knows, perhaps we can do it in an independent Scotland in future. Question, question number five, Pauline McNeill. To ask the First Minister what plans the Scottish Government has to provide support to small businesses in light of reports that 20,000 small businesses ceased trading during the pandemic. First Minister. Well, since the start of the pandemic, businesses uh, have benefited from more than £4.4 of Scottish Government support, uh, including an extension of non-domestic rates relief for all retail, leisure, aviation and hospitality premises in 2021-22. Uh, the Small Business Bonus Scheme is the most generous of its kind in the UK, offering up to 100% relief to qualifying properties, uh, saving small businesses around uh, £2.5 since 2008. Uh, the Scottish Government also provides a range of financial support and advice to small businesses through enterprise agencies and the Business Gateway Network. Uh, the Finance Secretary meets business organisations regularly to discuss issues such as economic recovery and will set out, of course, what further support will be available in the budget this afternoon. Pauline McNeill. Many of those businesses have been in Glasgow. In Glasgow, having suffered the longest and harshest COVID restrictions in Scotland, in a recent report, Yes, only one in 12 office workers have returned to Glasgow city centre and we've already lost 3,000 jobs from Glasgow Airport, adding to concerns about the city's long-term recovery. And of course, as the city region is a key driver of the Scottish economy and crucially important for West Central Scotland. Given this, can the First Minister say whether she agrees with me that Glasgow, as a key driver for the economy, urgently needs a fully resourced recovery plan with something like a specialist team to coordinate recovery and investment to ensure that the city's recovery it does actually happen out of this pandemic. 
First Minister. I, I absolutely agree with the sentiments uh, behind Polly McNeill's question, and I know uh, the leader of the council and indeed the council administration is very focused on supporting uh, recovery generally across Glasgow, but uh, economic and business uh, recovery in particular. Um, obviously, the support that I referred to earlier supports businesses across uh, Glasgow, um, and the rates relief uh, continued throughout this financial year for retail and aviation will have been particularly important uh, given the nature of the, the Glasgow economy. Um, and I hope there will be much in the budget uh, for businesses to welcome in that regard this afternoon. I think uh, the Scottish Government uh, needs to and will work closely with Glasgow City Council and indeed with other local authorities to make sure as we come out of COVID uh, and we, as I referred earlier on, we still have a challenging period ahead, which is why we are asking people right now to work from home uh, where possible. But as we come out of this pandemic, the focus on recovery and supporting uh, businesses will be one that continues to have high priority. Siobhan Brown. Thank you, Presiding Officer. Can I ask the Scottish Government when will the next phase of Scottish Government funding for the Scotland Loves Local Fund occur? First Minister. Uh, the Scotland Loves Local uh, campaign is really important to support local businesses and encourage people uh, to shop local. Uh, the Finance Secretary will set out all aspects of our funding uh, commitments, of course, uh, later on this afternoon when she sets out the budget. But supporting local businesses uh, and encouraging people to shop local will continue to be a key part of what we do. Question number six, Gillian Mackay. To ask the First Minister how the Scottish Government is marking International Anti-Corruption Day. First Minister. Uh, the Scottish Government strongly supports the principles underlying, underlying International Anti-Corruption Day as enshrined in the United Nations Convention Against Corruption. It is incumbent on all of us in leadership positions to set high standards uh, and the Scottish Government will endeavour to operate on the basis of openness, candour and transparency in all that we do. Julian Mackay. I thank the First Minister for her response. Throughout this public health crisis, the Prime Minister has been repeatedly mired in sleaze and corruption. Covid contracts were handed to Conservative Party donors, public sector roles and peerages were handed to political cronies, and an ethics adviser was shown the door rather than accepting his verdict of ministerial bullying. Even more galling than that has been the behaviour amid revelations that the UK Government does not respect the rules it laid down for others. At a time of national crisis, not only did those in his Sorry, inner circle... Sorry, Ms Mackay, Ms Mackay, can I just ask you to um, just pause for a moment while colleagues remember that we all want to hear your question. If you could begin again. Thank you. Thank you, Presiding Officer. Even more galling than all of that has been the behaviour amid revelations that the UK Government does not respect the rules it laid down for others. At a time of national crisis, not only did those in his inner circle deliberately breach the very rules they had set down for the public, they have continually tried to cover it up. And now footage shows them laughing about it while planning their excuses. This is no laughing matter for those of us who have lost a loved one during the pandemic. Boris Johnson has jeopardised public compliance with COVID Ms. measures. Mackay, Ms. Mackay, Ms. Mackay, sorry. First of all, I don't want to have to ask again in this session for quiet so that we can hear members. But Ms. Mackay, can you please ask a question? Thank you. Boris Johnson has jeopardised public compliance with COVID measures. Does the First Minister agree with me that it is time for this corrupt Prime Minister to go? First Minister.
Yes, I do, presiding officer. Um, while Gillian Mackay was asking her question there, I, I had uh, members of the Tory group uh, shouting at me from a sedentary position that these issues had nothing to do with us here in the Scottish Parliament. Well, I beg to differ. I think the principles and the values of openness, integrity and transparency matter to all of us who care about democracy in this country. I think Boris Johnson has many questions to answer. There are more questions surfacing today around the whole Downing Street wallpaper uh, issue, but I'll leave them to one side. I don't think it is simply a corrupt incumbent of number 10 that has to go. I think it's time for Scotland to get rid of the whole broken, corrupt Westminster system that is holding us back. And we can only do that, presiding officer, by becoming an independent country. Question number seven, Megan Gallagher. Thank you, presiding officer. To ask the First Minister whether the Scottish Government will withdraw the Health and Wellbeing Census 2021, given reported concerns over school pupils being asked questions relating to sex and relationships. First Minister. Uh, firstly, no, we won't. Um, but secondly, I want to make clear that the questions which have been the focus of much of the commentary around this survey are being asked of 14, 15 or 16-year-olds. Uh, next, the census is not mandatory, neither for local authorities to use in full or for children, uh, given that parents may or may not consent to their child taking part, and pupils themselves can also, if they wish to, opt out of the survey. But all governments have a responsibility, and I think it's a serious responsibility, to ensure that public service delivery is informed by lived experience. Absolutely. We have two choices. Either we can bury our heads in the sand and pretend that young people are not exposed to the issues or the pressures that we know they are exposed to, or we can seek to properly understand the reality young people face and then provide them with the guidance, the advice and the services they need to make safe, healthy and positive decisions. And I choose the latter. Uh, the latest information we have, uh, Presiding Officer, is that 24 local authorities have confirmed they are taking part in this census, which of course also features extremely important questions about people's experiences of the pressures of schoolwork, bullying and mental health. Megan Gallagher. Thank you, Presiding Officer. Um, parents have contacted me and my colleagues as they are concerned about the explicit nature of some of the questions. One of the questions asks, people have varying degrees of sexual experience. How much, if any, sexual experience have you had? Non-small amount, for example, kissing, some intimate touching on top of clothes, some experiences, but no sexual intercourse, for example, touching intimately underneath clothes or without clothes on, or more experiences, including oral sex, vaginal or anal sex. There has also been reports that the supposed anonymous questionnaires can be traced back to individual pupils, as they must enter their student candidate number twice, that is directly linked to their name. First Minister, would you feel comfortable answering these questions? And can you reassure Parliament today that should a young person complete these forms, they cannot be identified? First Minister. Well, firstly, on the issue of confidentiality, the questionnaires have been specially designed so that the information provided by children and young people is used for statistical and research purposes only, um, and that ensures that any results of the research or resulting statistics will uh, not uh, be made available in a form which identifies individual children 
um, and young people. Uh, let me repeat uh, what I said earlier on. Uh, this is a voluntary survey. It is only for S4, secondary uh, year four and uh, upwards. Uh, any parent can uh, refuse to give consent and, of course, uh, any young person can opt not to take part in the survey or to skip particular questions in the survey. It is not mandatory. But I come back to the fundamental point. Uh, we can choose to pretend that young people of this age group do not have uh, the experiences uh, that the member has narrated or is not exposed online uh, in the digital world uh, we live in. Uh, we can choose to pretend uh, that young people, girls sometimes in particular, are not subjected to harassment and pressure uh, around sexual matters. Uh, we can do that. We can refuse to ask the questions so that we don't know the answers, or we can get the answers that then allows us to better support young people, to provide the advice and the information and the guidance to young people that supports and enables them to make positive, healthy choices uh, for the future. I do choose the latter, and I would ask the Conservatives seriously and others, yes, to engage in any uh, legitimate concerns uh, around these matters, but don't whip up concern on the part of parents for completely unnecessary reasons. And let us all focus on what really matters, supporting our young people to make healthy choices in their own lives. I'll take one further supplementary question and I call Graham Simpson. Thank you. Um, does the First Minister think it is appropriate for the Scottish Government's active travel minister to turn up to a bikeability event for kids and not join them in wearing a cycle helmet? First Minister, uh, I don't know the circumstances of that. There are differences of opinion um, around the wearing of cycle helmets. I would also ex always expect my ministers to set a good example, but I'm happy to look into the particular circumstances and respond in more detail when I've had the opportunity to do so. Thank you. That concludes First Minister's questions. We will move on to members' business. Thank you.